1: Welcome to Heaven's Gate.
2: Hi, Heaven's Gate listeners. You probably don't know me, but my name is Jenna Weiss-Berman. I'm the executive producer of this show and the co-creator of Pineapple Street Media. Um, We're producing Heaven's Gate with Glenn Washington and Stitcher uh, we make a bunch of shows that I hope you love and already listen to, like Missing Richard Simmons. Uh, we also do a show with former U.S. attorney Pete Barrara called Stay Tuned. And we do a lot more shows, like Women of the Hour with Lena Dunham, Making Gay History. So if you're looking for a podcast, check those out. Uh, but for now, let's focus on this podcast, because I'm not here to talk about those shows. I'm here to talk about Heaven's Gate. This week, we're doing something pretty special— Taking a week off the bigger story, and instead we're diving into the story that made me really excited to work with Glenn Washington as the host of this show. Glenn's already told you a bit about how he grew up believing in a kind of end times Christianity, but there's a lot more to it, and a lot of you have emailed us and asked to hear more about Glenn's story. So this week I'm going to ask him some questions. Toward the end of the show, we'll give you some more clues about the series, more about what happened after T, AKA bonnie lou nettles died and we'll tell you about what the group did next and we also want to hear from you about your experiences with cults or just your experience listening to this show i'll tell you how to reach us at the end of this episode we really do want to hear your reactions but for now without further ado here's my conversation with our host glenn washington
1: I'll tell you who I am.
2: Tea and dough, whatever
1: they want to call us.
2: Whether or not you believe is up to you, you, you. We all have to deal with demons.
1: We're going to teach you how to prepare yourself. You are members of the next level. The next level.
2: All right, Glenn. Yes. I'm psyched to talk to you.
1: I'm psyched to talk back.
2: Awesome. Um, A big part of why we wanted to have you host this show and why we're so excited you're doing it is um, because you sort of had similar experiences growing up to Heaven's Gate. Maybe not exactly the same. Can you tell me, what's your earliest memory from being at church?
1: Everything that we ever did was kind of connected to a church. I think my very earliest memories, what they would do— is this, uh, this torture chamber for us every week and that the kids, even as, a, as tiny kids, you had to be quiet for two and a half hours. And so I remember being on a blanket on the ground and having the dirty look being shot at me, you know, that I was making some kind of noise, some kind of little kid noise I was not supposed to be making. How does the
2: kid um, stay quiet for two and a half minutes?
1: I don't know. I, but you know, <laughs> I'll know tell what two you, half what, hours we something. try. We, because we, because that's what they would do. They would, I remember there's this, this constant stream of very sour looking mothers taking their kids out back. And then you hear a little whap, whap. And uh, because, all oh, corporal punishment was very, very strongly encouraged. Spare the rod and spoil the child was very much part of our organization. So yeah, that's my earliest memory.
2: (laughs) That's not such a good memory. Can you tell me a little bit about how the idea of the like apocalypse or the second coming or whatever you want to call it affected your worldview when you were a kid?
1: You know, there are several recordings of Herbert W. Armstrong preaching. And I was surprised by one recently. And all of a sudden, I hear that voice from the past. And I felt like a kid in those folding chairs in that rented hall. And I felt that tension, that fear that you think the end is almost here. That is an interesting sort of condition as a little kid to have. You know, little kids are active, um, I was generally a cheerful boy, left to my own devices, but there was also that darkness because we did think the end was nigh. No joke. I know it sounds crazy, but we thought we didn't have much longer on this earth. I'm not going to lie and tell you I understood a lot of what Herbert W. Armstrong was going on about, but he used a lot of scary language. That's what I remember most. And... He was, uh, he was an ad man from way back. And so on the TV show that he had, there was this picture of the beast in Revelation. And this was early days. This was before, you know, computer graphics were a big thing. But he had computer graphics that animated this beast coming out of the ocean that was going to bring destruction on the place and I remember that. Good Lord, there was a woman riding the stride, the beast, and he had several heads and the feet of uh, elephant and dragon. It was just all kinds of stuff that was happening. It's scary. When you go to bed at night as a eight-year-old boy and wake up screaming, the beast is here, I guess they had done their job. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Um, how did your family join the Worldwide Church of God, and what, like, what were your parents' upbringings, what were they kind of seeking that brought them there?
1: My first impression of the Heaven's Gate story is that I know these people, that there is a certain type of person that is a seeker spiritually. This search for meaning in their lives consumes them, and those people were the people I grew up with. My parents came across a, a guy named Herbert W. Armstrong, who too, thankfully not to the extent of Heaven's Gate, preyed upon people who were genuinely seeking answers. And it's a shame. I really don't quite get it to this day. Um, it's very odd. My parents are both very religious, but they grew up in the Church of Christ. And that was more akin to sort of a, a black, Baptist sort of organization, though, though it wasn't um, Baptist, but it was kind of like what you would associate with that sort of a black Baptist tradition. How we got into the Worldwide Church of God, my, my father was actually trained um, to be a minister himself. I think what it is, is that there, you know, when you really get down to it, there's a lot of wacky beliefs on all sides around there. And if you are a firm believer in the Bible It's really easy. It's a good trick, actually. It's kind of a parlor trick to say, oh, you believe in the Bible, huh? Well, did you know about this? Mm -hmm. Did you know about that? Interesting. And oftentimes, I'm like, oh, boy, there's so many of these that, like, oftentimes that that can really strike people who maybe they're strong believers in whatever it may be, but maybe they haven't read that book. That's a big book. Mm -hmm. And it's in kind of archaic text One of the things I think that was interesting about our growing up is that they kind of seeded their own downfall in that they made the youngsters essentially memorize the book. As a youngster, I was memorizing the Bible, huge passages of it. Mm. And you can only really do that, I think, when you're tiny, when you're little. Mm. There's a type of fluency that happens when you're young that you never really have a chance to get again when you're older. Mm. And so, later on, when I started kind of trying to rebel against some of that stuff, they would cite various passages at me, but I had a storehouse of passages of my own that they had taught me <laughs> from the time I was a wee little child.
2: You knew better than anybody.
1: Of course. And all the all the youngsters did. The the church, the that generation didn't really have a lot of people who grew up in this organization. We were kind of the first group to grow up in it. And um, yeah, that that kind of spelled the seeds of their own demise.
2: Yeah. Um, For people who don't know what the Worldwide Church of God is, how would you explain the religion?
1: Well, I think that um, all cults kind of have a few starting points. And one of them is a single charismatic leader. And we had that in the form of a guy named Herbert W. Armstrong. And it was sort of, I believe, and this history is murky. I think it was deliberately kept murky. But I believe that Herbert W. Armstrong basically was someone who took a lot of the basic tenets of uh, the Seventh-day Adventist religion and took it and twisted it to his own sort of ends. And it started in the, really in the 30s and 40s. He, he realized that the more he spoke about prophecy— the the more kind of electric his uh, message was and attracted more people. So the first thing you need for a cult is probably some a single leader. And then and then Herbert W Armstrong claimed to have direct conversations with God. The other thing you want to do is make sure that people in your organization don't get to talk to a lot of people outside of it. So you gotta have you gotta put the lockdown on some kind of way. You know, you the family they're they're lost, they're gone. Your real family is here now. That's what's happening. Um, forget everybody else, and we certainly had that. And then kind of a third sort of spice to it is it's fairly apocalyptic, and that means that the end time is nigh, and it very much like Heaven's Gate, that you um, you had to get right now. Because uh, Jesus was going to return, and everything was going to get destroyed, and this was the only key. This is the only way out. And you mix those things up together. You mix them up in various different types of formulas. But that's generally, I, from my experience, what a cult is made of.
2: How long were you a member of this cult?
1: I was a true believer. I was. I, I had some issues on the edges, but I thought that generally... This was the truth until my late teens. Wow. I was a believer. I wasn't someone on the outside looking in, which to me right now is just stunning that I would cede so much of myself and my personhood to an organization. I can only shake my head now when I look back because it really was encompassing and um, who you are allowed to speak to. Especially as a young person, particularly, who you were allowed to date.
2: Who were you allowed to speak to and date?
1: Um, In my case, no one. Because um, uh, there's a very strict racial segregation aspect in that um, blacks and whites were not to be mixed and such, which was all well and good because I certainly loved the sisters. But in my area, there weren't any.
2: Mm. Were you the only black family? Yes. Oh, wow.
1: And on the Grand Rapids, Michigan area... Um, for a long time, we were the only black family, and then there was one or two more. Unfortunately, they had sons as well, so it wasn't. Like
2: <laughs> so there was literally no one you could date.
1: We had to go far and walk. This is what this is what's terrible. There was a. See, I lived in Grand Rapids, and an hour and a half away, there was a a black girl right in the church. Was like, oh mm-hmm. Lord! And everyone would be like, "That's there's one for you. There's one for you. I one that. option. Like, there's one for you. Yeah. Her father, I believe, was white. And so it was, and it's terrible for her too. You know, one, she's, a, she's in the middle of, a, of this whole vast sea. She can't do anything, but she flipped the script. She got, sent a letter to headquarters in Pasadena, California, where you could get a review of your racial classification and you could get a reassignment, which she did. She took a very, like a lot of flash in it took a picture, sent it in, and all of a sudden the only black girl for 150 miles got a letter saying that she was for all intents and purposes now with responsibilities white.
2: Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. So would you say it was a white supremacist vibe? I, there's,
1: there's a lot of white supremacist elements of it, yes, mm. absolutely. Um, there's something called the curse of Ham. Um, Noah had three sons. In the Bible, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And according to this theology, Shem was the progenitor of the white races, Ham was the progenitor of the black races, and um, Japheth of the Asian, because there's only three, you know, there's only three <laughs> only races. Only three races, yeah. <laughs> and so, but Ham was cursed, and his curse was apparently his skin color. Wow. Now they don't say any of this in the Bible about him being cursed with black skin, but that was that's an old theology, and it didn't wasn't invented by our organization. It comes from slavery days, but it was very heavily adopted hmm. um, and believed by a lot of people.
2: So, what do you think drew your parents, I your did, yeah, your black parents, yeah, to a kind of white supremacist? Cult?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I do not understand what black folks were doing, and there's not it wasn't just my parents actually. Um, there were other black families um, in this organization. At some point, there was actually a segregated, like, all-black services somewhere. In a lot of ways, you know, that mirrored America. Yeah. Uh, you know, just like with Heaven's Gate, they were um, very interested in UFOs at a time when America was interested in UFOs. I don't think that in the racial aspect of my organization I'm largely mirrored kind of the racial attitudes of the time. And I was living in a very rural area as well. Yeah, it was uh, it was wild.
2: Okay, there's quite a bit more to this interview, including Glenn talking about how far he thinks he would have gone for his religion slash cult. But first, we need to do a little business back in a minute. Back. I'm Jenna Weiss Berman, executive producer of Heaven's Gate, and we'll just pick right back up with Glenn and his family in the worldwide Church of God. Do you know how your parents first found out about the group?
1: Yes. The founder, Herbert W. Armstrong, he was multimedia before multimedia was cool. He had a um, a radio show, a TV show, a magazine. I believe my mother started listening to him on the radio and um, from there kind of brought my father in
2: So did your parents cut off their whole family except their kids basically when they joined?
1: At times, yeah. And, you know, terrible things. Like I remember my oh, my, pa- my grandparents trying to send us like Easter baskets or Christmas presents, which were forbidden according to our religion, and they would throw them in the garbage. Oh, no. And um, we wouldn't have contact with them sometimes for years at a time. And sometimes it would loosen up a bit, but then it would get tight again. I still deeply regret some of those walls that were put up because I didn't grow up with my other cousins the way they grew up together. We were very much apart.
2: Yeah. And how long did your parents stay in the group?
1: Until my late teens. And then the group essentially imploded.
2: Hmm. What happened?
1: The founder died. Oh. Yeah. So, again, a very common a story. familiar story. <laughs> yeah. This whole story with Heaven's Gate has made me really consider, like, if he had given us something to drink so we could go meet Jesus, I'm guessing that between 70 and 90% of the people would have drank it. And that's a scary, scary, scary thought. And another reason why I really appreciate it is sort of look back. It's like, what. If, if, we had, if it seems like anything could have gone wrong and we might have been in a mansion in San Diego because there was this sort of slavish belief in Herbert W. Armstrong that he spoke for God. He was an emissary of God. Heaven's Gate touched thousands of people and only a few went in and did the ultimate act. And that's what they're remembered for. Not the rest of the people, but the people who went the whole way. And so I don't, it's it's not surprising to me that there's going to be a zealot aspect to any group of any type, but the people who followed, what were they looking for? It seems like they were looking for truth and they found a type of truth. They found a type of community and I, would, I, I really want to know about that community more than anything. Like, what, what was it about it that made them feel home, that made them feel safe, that even in committing the ultimate act, they felt joy, they expressed joy? Most of the times, you know, suicide are the result of deep pain and, and sorrow. And this is just the opposite. And so how did, that, how did the community reinforce the, the process that people were going to go through to, have that, to commit that ultimate act at the end? I think I, I'm blocking out a lot about Herbert's death, Herbert W. Armstrong's death, because I was really angry at him. I thought that the church was run by a racist. And personally... I cheered when he died. I celebrated. After he died, he was replaced by a man named Joseph Tkach. And just as I had been hoping for, a lot of different things, a lot of changes started being made. Um, A lot of the racist sort of doctrine was retired. Uh, The rules against makeup for women were gone. And a lot of people didn't appreciate that. In fact, um, he made more and more changes. For me at this point, I had kind of already left it mentally. It wasn't making a lot of sense to me, and I, and I kind of wandered off.
2: Did you ever convert anyone?
1: No. I'll tell you why. I, I was a true believer, but I kind of had some limits to even what I was willing to do. What they would do is if you were a full baptized member, one of your privileges was you got to participate in a Passover ceremony where you would um, wash each other's feet. And I couldn't bear to go to a room and start washing people's feet
2: not n-
1: you're not into it. <laughs> so, I was putting this off as long as I could. My full membership privileges. <laughs> so I never so before I I never became a fully baptized member. Hmm. Even though all my friends, I think at the time were full, but I never went into that basement and I never washed anybody's nasty ass feet.
2: <laughs> well, don't blame you. <laughs> Um, I want to talk a little bit about when you really started you know, questioning it. You said you were kind of in your early teens when you started to be like, this might be a little wacky. Um, but what really, what set that off? And do, do you remember like some of your early thoughts where you were kind of like, this might not be for me?
1: Well, I think it did was largely along those racial lines. Yeah. Um, I, I got to thinking, this is crazy. And at first I thought, oh, they're they're messed up on this racial stuff but everything else is you know fundamentally true hmm. and then I got to realizing this is a fundamental aspect of the whole thing right. we taught kind of a theology about uh, the 12 tribes of Israel were the first american states and i can't explain it exactly except it was something about the founder of our organization claimed to be able to trace his heritage back from where he was to the kings of England and from then on back to Jesus and from Jesus to Noah and from Noah to Adam. And they called it something a pure strain. And pure Mm. strain was a pure white strain, which meant that Jesus was white, which meant that Noah was white, which meant that Adam was white. Mm. When I realized this is what they were really teaching, and how fundamental it was into the worldview, you yes, have to have some questions. Because
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> did you... they didn't
1: lead with that. They don't lead with that. Right, right? of course not. You got to dig deep into it a little <laughs> bit to understand, what now? The who? <laughs> the, the
2: curse? What? <laughs> so do you remember telling your parents? That, oh,
1: yeah my, yeah. my father was with me, actually. I remember my father actually helped me write a sort of biblical research paper. That we sent into Pasadena, California mm. to the head poobah or whatever it was. And we got some, you know, some little shiftless, ridiculous letters back. But we were, there was like a, a a few people in the church that were trying to change the doctrines. And, and, and you'd find other people who agreed with you and you'd, you'd communicate with them. It's not like today when you have the internet. And it was just so easy. No, no, no. You had to write a big letter, and you had to go to the to the library and get copies of that letter, <laughs> and then fold it up and and send it to somebody. And maybe in two or three months, you might hear something back. It was like this whole underground thing within the organization.
2: So, what did your letter say?
1: It basically was literally almost a research paper saying this doctrine of white whateverness. Doesn't make any sense mm. according to this book because one of the things our church always said is you can always go back to the book, you can go back to the book. The book p- will prove itself. And you had it memorized, <laughs> right? And that's a thing too. They, I did have it, large sections of the Bible and things memorized. Somebody might want to want to cite a passage. Well, oh, really? Well, let's mm. keep going. What does it say next? Yeah. Don't try to confuse this question because I got you, baby. <laughs> like, you, you think
2: you know more than right. me?
1: <laughs> right. But because in, in, in putting all that together, the Bible says a lot of different things. But the conceit or the concept of race, it wasn't really invented then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it can be overlaid with it. And here's one thing, too. It struck me so hard. There's a passage in the Bible. And this is, this is used um, in our own history against um, black folks, too. But there's a passage in the Bible that says that um, it is okay for a master to beat a slave. As long as the slave is able to get up in three or four days, then it's cool. Now, if, you, if the slave dies, that master can be held responsible. But if he's, if he's beaten to the point where he can get up in a few days... Well, that's his business, and it tells you why it says, because the slave is his property
0: mm.
1: and this is this passage was been used very regularly by you know our country by people that the the founding fathers and such by building you know the institution in this, of slavery into um the Americas this was cited mm. this is a this is this is forgiveness and in the Bible, and I tried. Various ways to read this differently. Okay, um, maybe it doesn't apply to black people specifically. Okay, that's well and good. But I don't think other people should be slaves either. (laughs) I don't think that people should be given license to beat other people. And I especially don't think it should happen because they are property. Mm -hmm. Women are, are given away as concubines or wives, or whatever you want to call it. This is in there, and people will say, well, that's the Old Testament. Things change in the New Testament. And I was thinking, well, why is the Old Testament cited over 100 times in the New Testament? Hmm. That dichotomy is not as strict as I might have liked it. And and, um, and when I started looking into it, the book itself started getting away from me. And what happened was, um, my pastor, to his credit, when I was going through these questions, and he gave me a book, and it was called, Who Wrote the Bible? Hmm. He gave it to me. And I read it, and I read it again, and I never went back. Hmm. This is why this story, I think, is going to be so interesting, is to unravel the mystery and take away the otherness of of the whole situation. It looks so foreign from a distance. And I hope, I'm hoping that the closer we get to it, the more pedestrian it looks. I'll bet that every single thing that's going on within that group, that when we look at it more closely, we've seen something like it somewhere else.
2: I'm glad you've listened this far. We've got more. We'll be right back. hey it's jenna i'm back with glenn washington and i wanted to hear about where glenn and his father are spiritually now so it sounds like your dad kind of supported you writing this letter
1: oh my father did he thought too again it seems weird that we were in this cult in the first place (laughs) but my father he's not like a like a tom or anything like that Mm -hmm. um I, we have very different beliefs in the, in the Bible, but he thought that was fundamentally flawed.
2: What is his spiritual life like now?
1: My father is a cult of his own. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had a cult. He just doesn't have any followers. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> kind of like T and Doe at first. Yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: We haven't really talked about your mom. What would you say about her faith?
1: My mother defines herself by her relationship with the Lord. And her Lord is a very authoritarian, rule-based deity.
2: Were your parents on the same page spiritually back then?
1: My father had left a little bit before I had, but he still had the same belief system. He was just kind of against a particular um, hierarchy and authority within the organization. My mother was still very, very devout within that group. And what neither of them understood was that I just didn't I wasn't just leaving the group, I was leaving the belief system. And you know, so when they would try to talk me one way or another, they would use the Bible or the beliefs or whatever as some sort of starting point. And that's just not where I was. So it was very difficult when we didn't have any sort of common ground and belief even have a discussion about why I left or why I wasn't going or why later on when I would go back sometimes really to see my friends I would just say hi hey, you know just go back to, to an event or something like that and my father thought well these people are you know, they're evil and corrupt and my mother's like glory be and I'm not here for any of this stuff I'm here to see Craig I'm here to see what's up with Christy And I don't believe any of this stuff. I just grew up with these people. So I wanted to stop by and say hello.
2: And what is your spiritual life like now?
1: My spiritual life is, um, let's just call it open. If I, this might sound self-serving, but I think that what I love so much about story and hearing other people's story and telling my own is that it's the closest thing that we have to magic. And it's the best way that I know to connect to someone else's divine is by hearing their story. It's like telepathy and everything getting in their head. When you hear a story and you feel like you've had someone else's experience, I think that you're sensing some aspect of the the divine. And I can't go beyond that through some sort of spiritual interpretation. But if I have a religion, it's based on that and that empathy of narrative. I want to find me I want to find An alternate me I want to see Because my own background Has been so touched By really religious charlatans Religious uh, malpracticers Malfeasers And I'm so In a way Grateful to have found um, My way eventually out of that And I know that it was probably the difference between finding my way out and finding my way trapped is just a gossamer thread. It's a slight wind. It's a butterfly's wing beat from being in a situation where I know I was trapped in a situation where I felt I feel more free. And so for me, this whole journey is an unwinding where I can go back and see okay, what if I had turned right instead of left? Could I have been in an organization like that? this, and, and, wh- and wh- how, I, how would I have responded? What's interesting is that I don't have the sense of these people being as much an other as our community at large does, because I know I have it on very, very good authority because of my background that I'm not another. I did grow up in an organization that was apocalyptic. And thank goodness that we didn't have to put on track suits. Thank goodness that's not how we went out. But I could see it happening. And so I want to kind of revisit the every single aspect of this. That is something that I'm really intimately interested in. And, um, yeah, see the other Glenn.
2: All right, that's my conversation with the one and only Glenn Washington, the host of Heaven's Gate. Glenn also hosts a really awesome storytelling show called Snap Judgment and uh, another show called Spooked. So you should check those out. And I promise it's not the last time we'll talk about his personal experience in the show. But it was nice to just take a minute to focus there. Coming up in the series, we've got cross-country road trips, Voices from the Heavens, and a very uncomfortable meeting in San Clemente, along with phone calls and grandmothers and a very touching love story. I can't wait for you all to hear this season, but also I wanna ask you for your help because as the show has gotten out there and you've been listening on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever else you've been listening, some of you've been sharing your own stories with us about things that you've personally been through. Here's just one example. One of our listeners, Joyella Cooper, wrote on our Heaven's Gate Facebook page about hearing how Glenn first encountered the news about the suicides. Here's what she said. The story you told of hearing about Heaven's Gate in a bar and feeling like you couldn't move. I know that feeling. I felt exactly the same way as I watched the compound of Waco burn. I was born into a cult with a leader much like David Koresh. Again, thank you for this, and thank you for putting words to a feeling I hadn't been able to put words to. Thank you for that, Joyella. And if you have a personal story related to Heaven's Gate or something like it, what happened? What made you join? What made you leave? How do you tell the story when you're getting to know somebody? What haven't you figured out about it yet? What do you still wonder? You can email us your stories at feedback at heavensgate.show and we'll gather some of them for a future episode. Or better yet, you can leave us a voicemail at 619-354-0180. Please let us know if it's okay to share your story with the audience. And that's it. Heaven's Gate is back next week with a whole new episode. Here's a glimpse of that.
0: Testing. This is do-do-do-do-do.
2: But I was like, I don't care what you thought. <laughs> I really don't. My mom died, and I should have been there when she was sick to, to hold her hand, to tell her I loved her, to whatever I needed to say. That was my right and they stole that from me.
1: The doctor told her that she had cancer throughout her whole body. And how T said back to the doctor, you have no right to say that, because you don't know.
2: I wish they had given me their stuff, because I would have burned every bit of it. It is impossible to miss a person with a tumor in their eye and then having their eye removed. Members of Heaven's Gate have to come to, to grips with the fact that their god is dying. As far as the the world is concerned, she's still alive.
1: Oh, um, Terry, uh, I would appreciate it if this if this tape would be between us, okay? Heaven's Gate is produced by Stitcher in collaboration with Pineapple Street Media. Our team includes Ann Hepperman. Barry Finkel, Diane Hodson, Josh Quinn, Osha Secker, Jess Hackle, Dan Taburski, Peter Clowney, Casey Holford, Jenna Weiss Berman, Max Linsky, and Chris Mann. Special thanks to Ben Zeller. I'm your host, Glenn Washington. This show deals with some difficult topics, like suicide. It can sometimes be hard for people to talk about suicide or get help if they're in danger. But we want you to know that help is available. There are resources available. People want to help you. One excellent resource is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's free, it's confidential, and it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The number is 1-800-273-8255. That number again is 1-800-273-8255. Or just remember, 1-800-273-TALK. I don't know, but you are supposed to get the point.
0: (laughs) This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating.